All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the show. I'm Glenn McDorman, and this is ATAS, your amnesia immortal speculative fiction book club podcast by Clay Temple Media. This episode, we are talking about the classic Nine Princes in Amber by Roger Zelazny. This is a book that was originally published in 1970. And this makes Roger Zelazny, I think, only the second writer to get more than one book here on ATAS. A while back, I don't know how many years ago that was now, we did uh, uh, Night in the Lonesome October, his his Halloween book, a uh, love letter to horror writers of past and present. Uh, it was a ton of fun to do. I should say as well, before we get into it, that we've also been doing a ton of Roger Zelazny elsewhere on the network. On Elder Sign, our, our weird fiction podcast, we've covered his novellas, The the Furies, For a Breath I Terry, and also The the Graveyard Heart. Uh, we've done two episodes on each of those, so it's many hours of talking about Roger Zelazny over on Elder Sign. And then on the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast, we've also talked about the novella The Keys to December. We also did two episodes on that. We like to talk here. So if you love Zelazny or even just are interested in getting into Zelazny because you love Amber and that's all you've read by Zelazny, I'd really encourage you to check out those episodes as well. We have totally fallen in love with Zelazny's work here on the, the network. All right. Well, when we did Lonesome October, I, I talked about how that had been the first Zelazny book that I ever read. Uh, I read it when I found it on a Halloween display at my local library when I was in the army. And that following summer, the, the Great Book of Amber was also prominently displayed. And I guess that is because it had just come out. This was, uh, this was 1999, I guess. And this absolutely massive book collects all 10 Amber novels in 1,200 pages. I read that whole thing in about a week. It was actually less than a week. And I know that I read the first two books in one day. Uh, I took a break to make spaghetti for lunch in between those two books. I actually remember that spaghetti meal vividly. And of course, something like that was possible because, well, one, that was all I did with my life, uh, but also because these are very short books. This one is only 120 pages, uh, and really, I guess that's the average length of all of them. That's 1,200 divided by 10. I know some math, I guess. Uh, but I'm going to return to the length of these books a little bit later in the show. But all of this is really just to say that I have fond memories of binging, binging, binging this series when I was in the army, and, and really when I was just binging speculative fiction in general during those years. And so I was very excited when our Patreon supporters voted this one into the ATOS canon. So let's do it. Let's just go get straight into Nine Princes in Amber. So the first thing that we should say about this book is that it is the first in a series. And actually, Amber, I guess, really is two series, each of them five books long, uh, following uh, different protagonists. But the point is, there's a lot of Amber material, a lot of Amber lore. But here, in this episode, I am just going to be talking about the first book, and so I'm not going to bring in any knowledge from the later installments. All right, so Amber is a fantasy series, but it is not a high fantasy story that takes place in a self-contained secondary world. Our world is real in this series, and in fact, the book begins on Earth, though it is going to end on another world. And maybe let's just start there. Zelazny's Amber universe is a multiverse of sorts. Uh, there are lots of different worlds that you can travel between. Um, you know, the mechanism for that, we'll just call it magic, though technically it's something different. Uh, but there is only one true world in all of this mix, and that is Amber. 
We'll talk about what Amber is in just a minute, but let's let's talk about the other worlds first. Uh, These other worlds, including our own, are shadows. And that is with a capital S, right? Shadows here is a proper noun. And what this means is they're not real. They aren't true. They are merely shadows of the true thing, which is to say they are shadows of Amber, which is the only thing of substance. And substance there is also with a capital S, also a proper noun. And you can think about the metaphor of that, right? There is a light shining on the true world and that light casts shadows and the other worlds are in and of those shadows. And if you think this sounds maybe a little bit like Plato's theory of the forms, as expressed in the the famous uh, allegory of the cave from the Republic, well, you're you're not wrong. <laughs> in fact, you're 100% right. I'm actually not going to talk much about that in this episode because we really just don't get uh, enough of it here, which really is to say that I know we get a lot more on this in later installments in the series. So I'm going to save that for a hypothetical future Amber episode. I mean, there is no guarantee I will ever do another one of these on the show. I mean, that's really up to Patreon supporters, but I'm going to save this topic, which would be the one I'd be most excited to talk about for that hypothetical show that may or may not happen. But all right, let's talk about Amber. Amber itself is something like a Renaissance city-state. It is a sprawling palace complex, and then it is a walled city. Uh, The whole thing is nestled against a mountain. I mean, it it might not be all that unlike Minas Tirith, to be honest. And then there is a massive forest and a a great ocean. There's a, a lighthouse. It's got a bit of everything, is the point here. And the idea, of course, is that everything in our world and also every other world in shadow, is a shadow. It's a shadow of what is in amber. So our forests and our oceans, also our lighthouses, are shadows of the true forest and the true ocean and the true lighthouse here in amber. People in amber are humans. I mean, you know, there might be some genetic differences if we examined them at that level, but they resemble us. Or, you know, I guess really the way we should put it here in the fiction is we resemble them. But then there is the ruling family of Amber, and those are the nine princes of the the book's title. These are are not humans. These are not regular people, uh, though their form is also the same as ours, which is to say that they can and do blend in on our world just fine. The difference is that they are numinous. They seem at least to be immortal, uh, and they might not age. Uh, They have healing powers. They've also got super strength, and they can shape reality to their will at least uh, a little bit. They have some kind of magic. But still, even though they are powered, they are not super powered, and they're not invincible. They can bleed. They can be physically harmed. They can even die from injuries. Uh, They can get sick. They even can contract the bubonic plague, as actually happens to our protagonist. Uh, And we will meet that protagonist in just a minute or two, I promise. Uh, The ruling family of Amber still also requires food and sleep and so on. And so even though they are numinous, they're they're modeled on Greek gods, Uh, though they may actually even be less powerful than Greek gods are frequently imagined to be. And these rulers are a family, though the backstory here is that the the patriarch, the, the king of Amber, a man named Oberon, has recently died. Of course, that means that the throne is empty, and that is the inciting incident for the plot, which we, we will get to, I promise. The the surviving family here are both men and women. They're, they're all brothers and sisters, but we don't get any mention at all of a mother 
in the backstory here. That's something that I found really interesting. Though we do also know that some of the males in this family have fathered children of their own with women that we'll just, for now anyway, describe as mortals. Uh, I'm going to return to that in a bit as well. Okay, so all of that so far has been the setting and also the, the setup for the story. So let's go meet that protagonist and then let's run through the plot of this book. What I haven't said about this book so far is that it's written in the first person. Our narrator's name is Corwin, but he actually does not know that when the book starts because he's got amnesia. But Corwin is a prince of Amber. He's, he's one of the sons of Oberon, this, this former king. But everything that we learn about Amber, everything that I've just said about the setting, all the backstory here, this is information that we get at the same time as Corwin is getting it because he has to relearn everything about Amber because he's forgotten it all. Uh, this is a pretty handy device for Zelazny to do a lot of exposition, but in a way that feels organic to the, the story. What it means, in short, is that even though our narrator is actually central to all of the, the speculative and numinous and magical stuff that's going on in this fantastical story, he also, at the same time, is an outsider to all of that. He's a stranger to all of that. So we have to see the world, or we get to see the world, through the eyes of someone who is also trying to figure out the way it works. It's, it's a good device. The plot here is relatively simple. Uh, Corwin wakes up in a hospital. He doesn't know who he is, but he's clearly being held there against his will. He discovers who's paying his bill, and then he breaks out of the hospital and tracks that person down. It turns out to be his sister, and in talking with her, and also in snooping around her house and finding some material objects that matter to him, Corwin begins to piece together some of what is going on, though, though at this point he still thinks he's just, you know, a regular human. And what is going on is that one of his brothers has claimed the throne, and now all the siblings are taking sides. They've always been a dysfunctional family, by the way. They've been trying to harm or even outright just kill each other for a few centuries at least, if not longer than that. And this is even while their father was in the picture. So Corwin's brother, Eric, is now in control of Amber. Uh, he's not yet properly king, though he's about to go through the coronation ceremony. That is unless he can be stopped. Now, some of the siblings have allied with Eric, but about half are opposed to him, and Corwin decides that he should try to take the throne. Along the way, he has to get his memories back, and doing this requires a visit to an underwater city that is a mirror image of Amber itself. Uh, it's called Rebma, which is Amber backwards. It's a, it's a nice touch. And he's joined here by two brothers and a sister, and they, they really, they're joining him in his fight against Eric. He also checks in on some of the other family members, and he discovers that there's a brother who's been presumed dead, uh, but who may actually be alive somewhere. I mean, who is definitely alive. It's just a question of where is he alive and what's happening? He's clearly in some kind of duress. And the same thing seems to be true of his father. His father's also clearly not dead, but might just be being held prisoner somewhere. All of this, of course, is fodder for future books. Now, I say checks in on, but what I really mean here is that Corwin uses a deck of cards to telepathically communicate with his family. Each card in this deck has a drawing of a family member on it, and by focusing on that person, Corwin can reach them telepathically. And in fact, if that person gives permission, the, the user of the card can even teleport to that person through the, the, the card. Uh, it's very cool. It's a very cool device. And, you know, hey, if that sounds very much like the sigils of the Endless in the Sandman, 
you're not wrong. In fact, if all of this sounds a lot like the Sandman, you are not wrong. Gaiman loves Roger Zelazny. He's even written a bit of Zelazny fan fiction. And I should say, hey, if you like The Sandman and you are not listening to our show about The Sandman, please join us. We're we're about halfway through at this point, and uh, it's, it's a great ride. We also have on that show covered that bit of Zelazny fan fiction that Gaiman wrote, by the way. Really awesome story. Okay, that was a bit of an unexpected diversion there. But look, the cards are cool. That's what I'm trying to say. The cards are cool. So the plot is really quite simple, though it is unexpected, I would say. Corwin and his brother, they, they gather up some forces from the, the Shadow Realms, and then they proceed to march on Amber. This is a journey that takes them through various Shadow Realms, and the whole time that they're doing this, Eric is opposing them. And so by the time they get to Amber, most of the army has been killed. In the end, Corwin is captured, he's imprisoned, Uh, The only reason he's not executed is that Eric wants to keep him around as a symbol of his dominance. And so he brings Corwin out of the dungeon for ceremonial purposes. And we're also really led to believe, led to understand, I should say, in this book that Eric and Corwin, their rivalry runs deep and that killing Corwin would almost be too simple and not tortuous enough for Eric. But in the end, Corwin gets out of jail. He escapes with some help from a fellow prisoner. Uh, this is actually, it turns out, to be the, the magic artist who made these uh, these trump cards, the, the, the cards that function like the sigils in uh, The Sandman. And Corwin recuperates at a lighthouse for a few months. Uh, mostly, he's just playing chess with the, uh, the lighthouse keeper. This actually sounds like a pretty awesome vacation to me. I want to sign up for this. And then, finally, the book closes with Corwin vowing to return to take the throne from Eric and then slipping into the Shadow Realms. And that is where we're going to join him in the next book, if we get to do that. All right, so that's the plot. So let's go ahead and move into our themes and motifs segment. Something that I suspect will become a larger theme over the course of the series is memory. I mean, our story begins with an amnesiac protagonist, right? Our our narrator doesn't remember who he is, and he has to discover that for himself. But memory shows up in some other places in this book as well, mostly surrounding all the missing family members. So I'll be interested to see if Zelazny develops this any further. But I think that it's fair to say that the central motif of this first book has to be family. It is obviously at the core of the story, right? This is a family drama, essentially, though it is also a court intrigue story as well. And it is not a well-functioning family. Uh, Siblings actively want to kill one another, and apparently they've done so for centuries, if not longer than that. I mean, even as children, they tormented each other. Uh, We actually get some bit of backstory about this. Uh, There's a a bit about how one of the siblings, this is uh, Julian, trains his dog to hate Corwin, and so Corwin has grown up totally afraid of dogs. I mean, it's, it's very Frodo Baggins, right? And, and likely intentionally so. I felt like this was a, an intentional illusion that Zelazny was drawing here. But the point is, these guys are all jerks to each other, every single one of them. And the default mode of these siblings is competition and rivalry. Sometimes there's an intense and homicidal loathing that also goes along with that. And, you know, sometimes there isn't. But feelings of genuine affection, uh, the sense of being on a team together... It is just not there, and it doesn't seem ever to have been there. This is a totally alien concept to this family, I think. But it's not alien to Corwin now because he has had memory loss and has spent centuries as an actual human. And so Corwin has a different perspective on all of this and even laments the fact that there is no actual 
sense of familiarity, a sense of familial bond among his family. He's got a great line here. He says, It is strange, I guess, to have kin and to be without kinship. Now, because I've read some other Zelazny books, and also maybe just because Zelazny was an SF writer in the 1960s, I know that he sometimes engages with Freud. Now, a lot of this is the idea that we are all made up of an id, an ego, and a superego, right? We have these competing and balancing impulses. But some of this is also the classic tell-me-about-your-mother trope. And I think it's telling that we have siblings who want to murder each other in a story with no mention of a mother. On top of that, and, and this is not a spoiler because I truly do not remember anything about later books in this series, but on top of that, I suspect that it is going to turn out that one of the siblings here is responsible for their father's imprisonment, wherever he happens to be. And so when we get that detail, the story's going to take on some Oedipal tones, right, if that turns out to be true. There's one other feature of the family that I should mention, if just because it's a cool world-building detail. Each of the siblings has a costume that they wear. It's a a standard set of colors that they always wear, and maybe even as a sort of natural inclination. For Corwin, it's black and silver. I mean, even without his memory, even without his identity, he just naturally buys black and gray clothing. And this goes with the idea that each of them also carries around a a deck of these, these trump cards that feature a picture of them in their iconic costume. And so this reinforces the idea that we're dealing with archetypes here, or, you know, platonic forms, maybe we should call them. Uh, And this is something, of course, right, I would definitely love to return to if we do more books in this series, which I hope we do. I would love to read more. But okay, that is all I really want to point out about family. And pointing out, I should say, pointing out is all that I feel really equipped to do when talking about this book. I'm going to take that up in the, the next segment. But there is one more thing that I do want to point out before we get to that segment, and that is Shakespeare. There is a ton of Shakespeare in this book. And we love Shakespeare here at the network. Uh, One of the first adventures that Valerie and I ever had was going to see a production of Titus Andronicus. It was a terrible production, by the way, but it was still fun. And of course, Shakespeare is all over Star Trek. Uh, Shakespeare appears as a character in The Sandman. Uh, There are two issues there that are retellings or or maybe reframings of Shakespeare plays. Uh, We've already done A Midsummer Night's Dream. And also, Brandon and I have even just finished talking about Othello in the context of uh, a Karen Russell story that we did on Elder Sign. So all of that is just to say, I was pretty excited when the first Shakespeare reference showed up here. And I'm actually just going to make a small catalog of those references uh, that's going to build towards a question that I want to pose to you. The first thing I'm going to say here is simply that Corwin knew Shakespeare like personally while he was on Earth. Corwin's deal, by the way, is that he lost a battle with his brother Eric, and Eric then sent him to Earth, where he uh, contracted the bubonic plague and lost both his memory and his identity, and then spent the the next few centuries working as a, a mercenary. And somewhere in there, he knew Shakespeare. I, I will say, I don't think that he got the bubonic plague in the Black Death of the 14th century, and it may actually be that he got the bubonic plague in the the bout of it that shut down London during Shakespeare's career that is actually the uh, the backdrop for Gaiman's uh, Midsummer Night's Dream issue of the the Sandman that's that's my headcanon for now anyway so that's where Shakespeare shows up first in the story but the first allusion that we get to Shakespeare's work in the story is that the the massive forest that is adjacent to Amber uh, where his brother Julian hunts with the giant dog is called the Forest of Arden 
Now, the Forest of Arden is a real place on Earth. It's a real place in Warwickshire, very much near Stratford-upon-Avon. But most people know that name. They know this forest because it's the setting of Shakespeare's play, As You Like It, which is a play about someone fleeing a court because of persecution. Uh, It's a story about an aristocrat in exile, which is also what this story is. It's what Nine Princes and Amber is. It's a story about Corwin in exile. And if we're thinking of Amber as the platonic ideal, if we're thinking of the contents of our world as shadows or reflections of elements of Amber, then all forests are shadows of the Forest of Arden. And it's interesting that Shakespeare's forest bears the same name. So that's item one in the catalog. Let's uh, let's carry on here and get a few more entries. One of Corwin's sisters uses the famous phrase, ill met by moonlight, which uh, Oberon says to Titania in A Midsummer Night's Dream. Um, I, I suppose, actually, I probably should have started all of this with, hey, Oberon, the king of the fairies in A Midsummer Night's Dream, is also the king of Amber. Uh, questions I have about this. Are they actually the same person? Are medieval European fairy stories actually about the court of Amber? Is Titania the missing mother? The brother Eric, who ends the book as the new king of Amber and who's the real antagonist of Corwin, he quotes Henry IV, part two. He quotes the, the famous line, uneasy lies the head that wears the crown. Uh, Corwin quotes Hamlet. He says, uh, to sleep, perchance to dream. And there are probably a few other instances of just like casual quoting of Shakespeare that I'm, I'm forgetting that I, I, I didn't mark. But what I really want to point out here is that it's not just Corwin who quotes Shakespeare, uh, because Corwin quoting Shakespeare is explainable by the fact, right, that he lived on Earth for centuries and even knew the guy, right? But Eric and Deirdre also know these lines, even though they don't seem to have ever been on Earth. So what's up with that? <laughs> That's the question I have to ask here. And I've got some ideas, but I'm going to leave this as my unresolved question for this episode. Uh, usually that's something I leave for the end of the episode. I will bring it up again there. Uh, but for now, let's go talk some strengths and weaknesses. I really, really love Roger Zelazny's work, and I've got such fond memories of reading Amber when I was in the army. So I want to go out on a high note. And to that end, I am then going to start this segment with the weaknesses rather than the strengths. There is really only one thing that I didn't like about this book, and that is that it is not a book. It's not a complete story. I I can't actually imagine reading this book in 1970 not knowing that there are going to end up being five books in this series and feeling satisfied at the end of this book, right? The, The bulk of this book is a long description of a usurping army marching on Amber, and it's very cool, actually. I really enjoy that segment, but... While there are some great descriptions in that section of the story, we never meet any of the soldiers. Uh, The only character we really care about is Corwin, our our, our narrator. And in the end, he's caught, he's thrown in prison, and then he escapes. This leaves us with a hint at a sequel in which he's going to be back to finish overthrowing his brother. But what that really amounts to is that we end in the exact same place where we began, with the only difference being that Corwin's memories are returned. Now, this on its own, this is not bad. There's nothing terrible about this, but it is clearly the first act in a story rather than a complete narrative arc on its own. Really, what I'm driving at here is that this is not the first installment in a series. What this is, is the first part of a 600-page book that Zelazny published in chunks. This is just not acceptable today, right? I imagine that the fantasy subreddit would lose its freaking mind about this today if it were published this way. But 1970 was a very different publishing landscape than we have today. Now, in the the early 21st century, we are totally used to purchasing very, very thick fantasy books that we know are even still only going to be the first in a protracted series. 
But this is new. This is a publishing landscape that derives from uh, the success of Wheel of Time and also A Song of Ice and Fire in the, the 1990s. Prior to this, fantasy novels were not 800 pages long. They weren't even usually 500 pages long. Uh, Gene Wolfe, in fact, includes a letter about this in his book, Castle of Days. Uh, This is a book that is half short story collection and half essays and letters and, and speeches and so on. And the the letter in question here is in response to a letter that Wolf received from a reader of the Book of the New Sun. And this reader was asking why the Book of the New Sun had been published in four parts instead of as a single 800-page book. And I'm going to say, I don't have this in front of me. I'm I'm, too lazy to pull it off the shelf, even though it's literally right next to me. Uh, So I'm paraphrasing here. But the writer of this letter says that he was perfectly willing to spend $50 on the 800-page single-volume version of the Book of the New Sun. And he's annoyed that he had to pay $20 for each volume, uh, and maybe especially annoyed that he had to wait for them. But Wolf's response is, no, you would not actually have paid $50 for an 800-page book. The publishers know that you would have balked at that price, and so they chop up the book into smaller and also therefore cheaper components. Also, this is how publishers manage writers. They, They don't buy the whole book, they just buy the first part and see how it does. And this publishing landscape that Wolf is talking about here, and I think also complaining about a little bit, is the same publishing landscape that Zelazny operated in. And he published these books regularly over the span of eight years, and so I think it's pretty clear that he had at least the second volume written before he even sold the first one. Uh, He probably had more than that planned before Nine Princes in Amber ever saw print. So I can't fault Zelazny for this, but still, I was disappointed that the story just kind of stops rather than comes to a real proper ending. And this is not something that I noticed the first time I read it 20 years ago, because I read the first two books in one day. And, you know, now that I'm thinking about it, I mean, the reason I did that instead of doing something with my afternoon, like watching the Cubs day game or going for a long walk or going to uh, one of the local churches and having philosophical questions about science fiction books with one of the local priests, which was normally how I spent my afternoons in those days, is because I had to keep reading the series after the first book because it ends just as the story is getting started. And of course, no one now is reading just the first book, right? It's only in print in this great book of Amber. And if I were able to read things outside of the scope of my day job and managing this sprawling podcast network, I would just go read the second one right now. And I I do hope, as I've said many times in this episode already, I do hope we get to do it for the show in the future, because I, I am dying actually to know what happens next, since I don't really remember, which is also probably a product of reading the whole thing in like three days. All right, that is my gripe about fantasy publishing in the 70s and 80s. Let's go talk about what's awesome about this book. First of all, Corwin is a really great character, and I know that he's going to get even greater as the series progresses. That's the the one thing that really does stand out in my memory. Uh, Zelazny gives Corwin a hard-boiled narrative voice at the beginning of the book. This is, you know, when he's an amnesiac immortal mercenary who's seen too many wars and also survived the bubonic plague. In this part of the book, too, he's got some fairly snappy dialogue, and it is not immediately clear that we're not actually in some kind of hard-boiled detective story. But as the book progresses, as Corwin's memory and Corwin's identity return, his hard-boiled voice transforms into something that feels more appropriate for the fantastical settings that the book is now taking place in. It is something that's very deftly done. Zelazny handles this just with amazing skill. Corwin also is quite fun as the clever trickster in a world that seems to be full of brutes. 
Now, I spent a lot of time going on here about Shakespeare, right? But I should say that there's a lot of Odysseus in the allusions as well. And at Corwin, by the way, it, it just means raven-like in Latin. So even his name is associated with cleverness and trickery. Um, there might be something going on there with uh, you know raven and the colors that he wears, the, the black and gray or black and silver. More broadly speaking, something that has really struck me in reading Zelazny's short fiction for some of our other shows on the network is how great he is at descriptive writing. And I can honestly say, even, even as a diehard Tolkien fan, one of my all-time favorite speculative fiction landscape descriptions comes in Zelazny's novella, The Keys to December. I mean, this is something that went all the way to my top five as soon as I read it. I mean, it's just, just awesome. Also, I do keep a top 10 list of landscape descriptions because I'm a complete weirdo. But I must say, we don't get that level of Zelazny's descriptive powers here, but there is still some just top-notch wordsmithing. And I want to share just one passage with you before we get out of here. This bit here that I'm going to read to you comes about halfway through the book. This is when we arrive at Amber. Here's what, uh, what Corwin says. Amber had always been and always would be, and every other city, everywhere, every other city that existed was but a reflection of a shadow of some phase of amber. Amber, 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 I remember thee. I shall never forget thee again. The poetry of this passage is just spectacular. It's awesome. The repetition of amber and every, and just a, a, a general emphasis on a and e words here. I mean, it's, it's, it's poetical and it sings and I love it. And the book is full of writing like this. It's just awesome. So that's it. I'm going to take us out on the high note of the poetry of Zelazny's prose here. So that's going to bring my review to a close. I do hope that you'll visit the ATOS forum at claytemplemedia.com or join me on our subreddit, which is just Clay Temple Media, and come talk with me about the themes and motifs and the, the strengths and the weaknesses that I focused on. But of course, as always, especially on the things that I didn't talk about, the things that I left out and I want to circle back to that unresolved element in this novel that I've already brought up. And that's the fact that the royal family of Amber really loved to quote Shakespeare. In Corwin's case, of course, we know that he knew Shakespeare personally and that he's lived on Earth up until the present. So that makes sense. But that does not seem to be the case for the other characters and certainly not for Eric. So how do they know Shakespeare's work? And it is not just Shakespeare either, by the way. There are other bits of modern earth culture at work in Amber. I mean, they, they, they play green sleeves at Eric's coronation, for example. And so what I'm really getting at here is whether it's just that these characters really are especially interested in earth, or if we're meant to understand that our art all derives from Amber. I mean, sure, right? We all know to be or not to be. We all know what fools these mortals be. We all know from my mother's womb untimely ripped. But were these lines originally written by some playwright in Amber and they've merely been reflected on earth through Shakespeare, right? What I'm getting at here is, is Shakespeare merely the shadow of some true playwright in Amber? And I have some thoughts on this, but I would love to know what you think. So I do hope you'll come talk with me about this. But all right, that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find me and all our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. On Twitter, I'm at GL McDorman, and the network is at Clay Temple Media. Next time, we are going to be doing exactly the same thing that we did in this episode, which is starting a fantasy series of very short books from the 1970s. But this time, it is going to be the Riverworld series by Philip Jose Farmer, uh, the first book of which is called To Your Scattered Bodies Go. 
But until then, I hope you'll remember that if more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world.